are back. Want to hear a story about a weird man that I met in um, Joplin while I was doing a survey? Sure. So we were in this park, and there's, like, a homeless community in Joplin. It's not, like, a whole bunch of... They they're, gen- genuinely seem to be a community. Like, they do things together. Yeah. They hang out. They, they support each other. Um, so we were serving a park, um, and we need to take a picture of a pavilion that people were hanging out in. And we're like, oh, we got to take this picture. And then, like, if you don't want to be in it, can, is it... Like it, it's it's like three seconds. You just need to get out of frame. Yeah. And the guy came over and like you know friendly talking. What you doing? Da 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 da. And they're like, oh yeah, we're doing the work on Seventh Street. And everybody in town seemed to know that the work on Seventh Street was going to be happening. Um, because as soon as we said that, they're like, okay, bye. Like we don't care anymore. But he's like, you want to hear a funny story about Seventh Street? And I was like, you're going to tell me anyway. Um, <laughs> I don't have a choice. <laughs> but sure, because this is not a negative experience so far, so I'm fine with this. <laughs> Um, cause I get a lot of them. He's like, yeah, there was one time it was really, really heavy rain and this park has a river going through it and it's in like a depression. So the road is also in a depression there. And he's like, and there was so much rain that like the park was all flooded. The road was flooded. So I was, I had my pickup truck up on seventh street. I wasn't going to drive through, but I saw all the fish and they were very visible. So he started fishing. <laughs> so he's fishing in the flooded, um, on the flooded road where yeah. the river normally is. He's, like, having some great success. People are coming by, commenting on his successful fishing. People aren't going through the water, though. It's too deep for it. Yeah. He's fishing, 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 and all of a sudden, a semi comes by, and he goes, and the semi drove by and ran over all my fish. (laughs) (laughs) So he couldn't fish anymore. He sold them as he had in his boat, but I was just like... Oh, my goodness. And I was on speakerphone with my coworkers because it was raining a little bit, so I was just getting the photos really fast so they didn't have to get out and get the paperwork wet. Yeah. And they are listening to this conversation, and they start dying laughing. He's like, what is happening? I was like, I'm sorry, my coworkers in the car. I'm telling them the pictures I'm taking. They heard your story, too. They loved it. That's so funny. <laughs> Any That's bits so and bobbles fun. to add? Uh, I have nothing. That's okay. We can continue, then. Um. So... This is the yeah, story no, of the Knights of the Golden Circle's treasure. Oh. This is just, just national I'm treasure sorry, what real is life. This? <laughs> what did you say? Uh, my source is legendsofamerica.com. Um, um, is this the Goonies? It's just. Wait, isn't the Goonies like real? I don't know. Like, isn't it like half real? Like, obviously I, there were I kids that went and found I truly think it's based off the concept of this story. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. That's, like, my favorite movie of all time. I have a lot of favorite movies, I feel like. I, I think what they took is um, Kids Find Treasure, and that was that was it. No, I'm less excited. I'm sorry. I guess, continue anyway. Is it anything like Ratatouille or The Parent Trap? No! <laughs> <laughs> then I'm going to be equally disappointed, because those are my other it's two a little favorite bit, movies. a little bit like National Treasure too. Well, the first one's better. Is there a little okay, golden man? A little bit. Like National Treasure too. I said what I said. There's a little golden man. Audrey's favorite movie quote of all time. <laughs> oh, what a good movie. I remember I think, seeing I think Riley was the first crush that you could actually have that wasn't um, something animated or dead. Yep. Um, the Knights <sighs> of the Golden Circle. We... This is going to sound very familiar to you, Audrey, but I feel like I have to do a quick overview. Fine. So the Knights of the Golden Circle were one of the U.S.'s most, um, I would say, successful Southern rights fraternal organizations. Uh, this is not a good thing. <laughs> no. As they opposed abolition, they opposed Northern churches. Um, the general Northern interference in Southern matters, they opposed that. Um, 
And they also, they wanted to just, like, casually create a giant slave empire, which would include all the slave states in the U.S., and then Mexico, and then Central America, and the Caribbean, all those islands, and then a little bit of, like, the northeastern coast to South America, whatever touches the Caribbean. They wanted to make that a giant um, country called the Golden Circle, where slavery was legal. And that's our uh, quick what the Golden Circle is, nice as the Golden Circle are. Good synopsis. Thanks. So, one of the other things that the Knights of the Golden Circle wanted to do was to begin exporting slaves out of the continent of Africa again, which had been, um, like, fully illegal for some time now. Yeah. Um, one of their members, Captain John J. Madison, owned a slaver ship. Eliza Davidson was the ship's name. Um, and it was captured off the coast of Sierra Leone while participating in illegal slave trade kidnapping. Um, so we, like, know for a fact that he was definitely doing these illegal activities, and we also know that he was definitely in this organization. So John okay. G. Madison owned a house in Baltimore on South Eden Street. I own a house. <laughs> Great, Audrey. <laughs> well, first you just go, owned a house. <laughs> and then it almost sounded like you were going to stop there. Madison... <laughs> was um, not the lone member of the KGC in Baltimore. There were about 3,000 other members in the city, um, which is what one one would consider quite a few. Yeah. (laughs) They were known for collecting fees and dues in the form of gold coinage, um, which is not subject to inflation, can be used as the new currency in the new country you want to make. You're not dependent on your old country that you want to leave money, then it's I a great idea. A this makes sense. Anyway, so they're, they're, this is how they're collecting all of their dues and such. Okay. So one of these 3,000 Baltimore members was none other than John Wilkes Booth. Um, Stop. He, Our stories are going to be very similar today. <laughs> I'll close out of it so you don't look at it. Um, he was at the time of of his initial of initiation. He was at the time of his initiation. He was living on Exeter Street, um, and it is known that he was initiated in a house in the neighborhood. Uh, Madison's house was a few blocks away, so it could have been his initiation location. Yeah. Um, there are also many other houses that could have been his initiation <laughs> location for. Uh, Reasons we'll get into. Alternatively, we'll go immediately, I guess, we're into it. I don't remember my notes anymore. Did I write them yesterday? Yes. <laughs> Literally me. As soon as I write notes, I'm like, that is a surprise so to me. another site, and what I think would be the more likely site of the two sites we will look at today, um, is the house of Andrew Salisbury. Um, he was an executive at a soap and candle company and an ardent Southern sympathizer. His parlor was said to be decorated with paintings of Confederate heroes. <laughs> and he just so happened to live around the corner from Madison. Wait, that was the art in his home? The art in his parlor was here. Confederate heroes, which would make a great initiation location with all those heroes around you. Yeah. Finley is chatting up dad, I think. That sounds like the episode of Psych where it's like all the members and that one librarian and then they see Henry. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. It, it looks just like that. Um, but it's it's Finley Confederate like Confederate heroes okay. um, in he's this not, man's parlor. He's he's just wants to go party. So my guess is this would be the initiation station. Yes. Um, Salisbury does later buy Madison's house, so there's everybody's just interconnected. Okay. Um, so 
The soap and candle company that Salisbury worked at was called James Armstrong and Associates. He was one of the associates. <laughs> Their primary factory was located off Pratt Street near the Inner Harbor, where Madison docked his ships and where the enslaved people he brought in um, that he was going to sell into the Deep South because you had to sell them to the Deep South or people would know you were doing very illegal activities. Yeah. Um, where they were held in pens. Um, that's right next to the soap and candle factory. Um, okay. So that's, that's all fun. All fun and games. So James Armstrong would eventually leave the business to Charles Webb Jr., James Webb, Andrew Salisbury, who we already know, and his nephew, Thomas Armstrong. Charles and James Webb were high-ranking Freemasons. This is an entirely different fraternity. Um, Charles being the youngest ever Grand Master. Get out of here. Um, becoming Grand Master of Maryland. Charles' sponsor um, to get into the Freemasons was Albert Pike, who would become the Supreme Cam Commander of all Southern Freemasons, and was also a suspected national leader of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Um, Scary stuff. So these are, these are like some powerful people, baby. Um, so the Salisbury family was very obsessed with the soap men. That's how I'm going to say this. Andrew's son was named James Armstrong Salisbury. Um, he had a grandson named Charles Webb Salisbury. Stop. And another grandson named Thomas Armstrong Salisbury. Um, so three Why? men from the soap company. Uh, they are, here's the thing, they are brothers in business. They are brothers, brothers in, in arms. Blood, they are brothers in blood. But they're not brothers by blood. Nope, just in it. Um, this is like, it's just a crazy number of people that have named after, like, everyone's naming the people after their relatives or um, famous namesakes, you know, like George Washington, yeah. Lafayette, Binkley. Um, to be naming all your kids after your just work associates is a lot. It's creepy. It's Especially what? grandkids. Can you, can you imagine? <laughs> if you just named your... If they were like, and this is my grandson, and it's your name, it's, I'd it's be like... It's your boss. I don't think we can do business with like, you no, anymore. We're done. <laughs> That's weird. You're out of here. <laughs> So Thomas I mean, Armstrong. I you know these people are so honored, but I'd yeah. be like, mm, definitely not. Thomas Armstrong, who is the ne nephew of the original soap man, um, not the grandson named after, this is the original Thomas Armstrong, lived in the Fountain Inn, which was a known hangout for Southern sympathizers, including John Wilkes Booth. Um, okay. And it, a lot of the plotting that they do out of Baltimore occurs in this location, including the plot to... Infect the North with yellow fever. I wish they detailed that more. I wanted to know how they were going to do it. Were they going to use plague blankets? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> um, I assume, yeah, Obviously, it's biological warfare, and that would have been fascinating to know more about. Yeah. But they didn't succeed. There might have been some yellow fever happening. To them. Um, to anybody at this time, because there's, there's always yellow fever happening then, but... Um, one of the other things they planned there was the assassination attempt of President-elect Abe Lincoln, which we uh, talked about briefly, I think, in the last episode. And here's something. We're going to talk about it more in my episode. Oh, my gosh. Um, so the KGC had planned at the Fountain Inn um, to assassinate Lincoln when he passed through Baltimore on the way to the inauguration, like by rail, I assume. I think people are using trains by now. Yes. I know they have trains. Um, 
So there's a two-pronged effort to make sure this doesn't happen, and I think this is very funny. <laughs> there's a railroad tycoon in New York who hears a rumor of the plot to assassinate Lincoln in Baltimore. So he hires a whole bunch of undercover detectives to go down to Baltimore and root out the conspiracy. And they just happened to choose to stay at the fountain because it was a known place where Southern sympathizers gathered. But they didn't necessarily know this was like the talky, chatty spot where they were plotting everything. Um, They might have had that suspicion, but it was not like a proven thing yet. At the exact same time is this random wealthy New York man (laughs) was doing this to make sure Lincoln got to office. Yeah. Lincoln's advisors had also heard the rumor, and they hired Alan Pinkerton, um, who owned the Pinkerton Detective Agency, to spy on the Baltimore conspirators. Like, Pinkertons are, like, a thing that if you know history, you know them. Yeah. Um, so both groups successfully discover the whole detail of the plot, um, and found out that if Lincoln were to travel through Baltimore, there would be an attempt on his life. Um, and that the head of the Baltimore police himself, George Proctor Kane, who was Marshal at the time um, of the city police, would either be directly involved or at the very least refuse to offer any protection to Lincoln while he was in the city because he was shockingly a member. Um, what ended up happening is Alan Pinkerton, Pinkerton himself ended up sneaking Lincoln through the city in the dead of night, which got Lincoln safely to D.C., um, Interesting. Yeah. More on Baltimore and the Civil War. <laughs> this should be mentioned that I'm using one source. Um, and it is not necessarily a holistic history of the Civil War in Baltimore and whatever the KGC was doing there. It's whatever was serving the author's interests in telling the end story so it's only focusing on the people who would he he believes were he they i don't know who wrote it believed were involved in the treasure that comes later Uh so what does that sentence mean (laughs) scheming in a massacre battle violet riot in the city (laughs) What was I typing? You're asking. I'm learning. I don't have a clue. You didn't write it. I know, but maybe you could make sense of it. Violent, obviously. No, I know that one, but. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. So, I know what the end goal of the story is, so we'll start. So, as states started to secede, northern troops were ordered to make their way to D.C. to protect it, because D.C. is in... um, in the heart of these states that are is in the south dc is in the south <laughs> that's a problem <laughs> so troops are ordered to come down and protect it and to sorry i have the hiccups so the time to get to dc and um actually still today the major highway has to go through baltimore if you're coming through the north yeah so the first set of troops go through baltimore and they're attacked as they cross pratt street bridge um which you might remember that name from earlier soap companies on that yeah. street um, you know, they happened to so just so happened to pass in front of the soap company. I don't think that was necessarily like part of the plan. I think that just happens to be the main street. Um, so they're attacked. This is, you know, not a good thing. No. <laughs> I don't think it was necessarily a detrimental attack. I think it was just unexpected to meet yeah. that 
opposition because Maryland had not seceded. Maryland's a border state. Maryland never secedes. Um, anyway, so the night after the of the attack, but things are over. Marshall Kane, that is his title. That's that's the police chief person guy, Marshall Kane. Um, sent off a telegram to the Maryland militia saying, "Streets red with Maryland blood." Send express over the mountains of Maryland and Virginia for the riflemen who come without delay. Fresh hordes will be down on us tomorrow. We will fight them and whip them or die. <laughs> Which is an insanely long telegram. Because telegrams are delivered by beep, 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 beep. That's so many letters to type out. We will fight them and whip them or die. Like a shockingly long telegram. So Kane and um, a group of Southern sympathizers that he gathers up, I assume they're from the city and probably like maybe some local areas, but it's not, it's not the whole, it's not the hordes he's calling in with the telegram, start to burn all the bridges and then tear up all the railroad track that leads north in the city. Northern troops are then rerouted for obvious reasons. Um, (laughs) The capital is eventually secured. Um, As soon as the capital is secured, Lincoln says, well, Baltimore, you're the worst. So he sends up a whole bunch of troops, and they seize it, and it remains um, under Union control for the rest of the war. <laughs> the As soon as it's seized, the mayor, George Brown, who is a member of the KGC, and Marshall Kane, who we already know is a member of the KGC, are arrested and sent to jail without trial. This is important. Um, apparently, after the arrest, um, friends of John Wilkes Booth remember him saying... Um, another absurdly long thing for anybody to be remembering. The other thing was a too long thing to type. This is a too long sentence to remember. The sentence is, I know George P. Kane well. He is my friend. And the man who could (laughs) drag him from the bosom of his family for no crime whatsoever, but a mere suspicion that he may commit one (laughs) sometime, deserves a dog's death. What does that mean? He's saying that George P. Kane is absolutely innocent. George B. Kane is also his friend, and that he will kill anybody who did this to George P. Kane. Okay. That's what he's saying in that sentence, but that's an absurdly long sentence for anybody to remember happening. Hey, you there, remember this. I know, right? Was somebody (laughs) writing it down? I need to know. Everyone just has their diary out at all times, because you never know what's going to be a vital piece of information for future historians. Um, So Kane is released a year later, moves to Canada, joins the Confederate Secret Service, and from Canada orchestrates fire bombings, train derailments, bank robberies, and is even suspected of being the mastermind behind an abandoned plot to free 2,000 Confederate prisoners in a milita- military prison on Lake Erie. Um, so, yeah, definitely an innocent guy, John Wilkes Booth. Like, yeah. you're right, definitely not doing anything. Here's the thing. I understand from their perspective, he does not think he's doing anything wrong. You gotta think about it that way, too. <laughs> Do I? These people think they're justified. Yeah, they still do today. <laughs> I know they do. I'm not saying they are, but I am saying that's this is where it's coming from. Apparently, Booth did know Kane. Um, this was shocking to me. I thought this was a made-up friendship. Like he met him. Some <laughs> he, like he's like the little guy in the corner of the uh, of like the little gatherings. Yeah. It's like hey, um, is how I sort of pictured this friendship. <laughs> like I know him well, but like he doesn't. Apparently, he did know him though. <laughs> Because he goes up to Canada 
um, to try to secure funding for a plan he hatched to kidnap Lincoln and ransom him for thousands of Confederate prisoners. And the Confederate Secret Service gave him some seed money for the operation. So he knew him well enough, or at least thought the idea was good enough. Yeah. So it took... It took a few months, but Booth managed to put together a team, secure weapons, and prepare an escape route. They attempted the kidnapping twice, but failed both times um, because the president changed their plans. Because his, his goal was to snatch Lincoln out of his carriage when he was, like, going out and about in the streets of D.C. This was his goal. And he, like, knew the route, knew the route, and then plans changed, and now he can't do it because he doesn't know where the president yeah. is anymore. And I believe one of these times he was distracted because someone had, like, there, I don't remember which battle it would have been, but there was a battle. One of the battle flags of the Northern Army of Virginia or whatever that whole name is, like, the classic Confederate flag had been stolen during a battle, like, successfully taken, kidnapped, captured the flag won. It was rightfully taken. It was war. Um, is what I was trying to say and couldn't get those words out. Yeah. It had been lost after this battle, refound in somebody's barn. Everyone was really excited to find in this person's barn because these are like great tokens of success. Like mm-hmm. you want, you want these. So they're bringing it to DC, DC, to DC to show it, and that's what changed the president's plan. He's like, "Wait, I want to go see the flag." <laughs> and I believe that's one of the instances that changed it. And I could be mixing up histories there could have been a lot of attempts on his life and that was saving him from a different assassination who knows yeah um but that was something that once changed his plans and prevented something negative happening to him so while waiting for these kidnapping attempts to succeed kane had come down from canada and was waiting in an undisclosed location in the shenandoah valley while preparing for a third attempt to kidnap Lincoln, um, Kane was alerted that Richmond had been captured. Um, Jefferson Davis, the the president of the Confederacy, um, had gotten on a train along with the gold from several Virginia banks and um, nine thousand pounds of Mexican silver coins. Okay, managed That's a to lot. get out of the city um, via train, and they were headed to Danville, Virginia. Uh, the coins were, the silver coins were all money from the Confederate cotton sales. Yeah. Um, not Confederate, Southern Confederate cotton? No, Confederate cotton is what I wrote. It would be Confederate cotton. Yeah. So, in Danville, Kane met the train. Um, the train continued on. Kane stayed. And so did all the silver. <laughs> Kane stayed in Danville for four years. <laughs> After after he is left there with the silver, because apparently he really is, like, I I always assume these people are all just like fake and not actually like I, I assume everyone's a con man I guess because I never think they could actually be holding these positions I'm shocked every time history's like and this was this man I'm like are you sure <laughs> are you sure they did that so anyway eventually Kane no, returns to not. Baltimore <laughs> no one ever is <laughs> um he's appointed to the mun- municipal water board. By Charles Webb, who's not a politician, but has all the powers of a politician. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? So in 1873, he leaves position to run for Baltimore sheriff, um, and his position on the Water Commission is replaced by Andrew Salisbury. They're just all still intertwined with each other. 
Um, I already told you those things. So Kane later becomes, runs for mayor of Baltimore, and then successfully becomes mayor of Baltimore, and then appoints Charles Webb's tax collector. This is the only position that Webb officially holds, like, political position, his tax collector for Baltimore. I don't know what that means. I just thought it was really weird. Yeah. That was his goal. He was like, one of the things I'll do if I'm elected is, is appoint Charles Webb Jr. as tax collector of this city. Because that's why I would elect for anybody. Or Fair why I would enough. elect anybody. I would vote for anybody. Kane died shortly after taking office, though, so. Plan didn't go. He didn't. I mean, he got to. Well, I think he appointed yeah. Webb, but he just didn't get to do anything else, which is probably really, like, a good thing. Yep. Because um, he's not a good dude. No. Um, Salisbury dies suddenly shortly after, and his affairs are in order. He's, like, 46, which is not... Young, but also young, not old. Young, but also not old even by then standards. Yeah. Like, 46 is pretty young. So not all of his affairs are in order. That's important for later. Um, Madison dies shortly after Salisbury, so now now we have a whole bunch of these big guys all dead, dead at once. And, and obviously everyone else dies over time. And... Yes, <laughs> They're still alive happen. to this day. So, you know, now we have this, the original KGC big guys, did. big guys are all gone now. And we get to the treasure. What we've all been waiting for. <laughs> I could have just told you the paragraph and then it wouldn't <laughs> be the story anymore. <laughs> so, no, I'm not saying we didn't need to hear it. The Mexican silver has never been located. We have no clue where that went. <gasps> the Goonies, it's on the ship, you guys. It's on the ship. Um, years after the Civil War, while the um, the Fountain Inn was being torn down to construct the Carrollton Hotel, a box of 2,000 gold coins was located <gasps> during the during Stop. the demolition and is believed to be directly associated yeah. with the KGC um, activity in the hotel, which would make sense because... It's it's called the Fountain Inn. Yeah. This is not a large establishment. Yeah. <laughs> it's not one of the fancy new fandangled hotels like the one they're trying to build uh-huh. where it is. And then um the thing we're all here for. In nineteen thirty-four, two boys, Henry Grob and Theodore Jones, are exploring the basement of their tenement house on Eden Street in Baltimore. Um, while poking around with an axe and a corn knife. Why did they have these things? <laughs> I don't know, they're just messing around. <laughs> they're like poking around in the basement. Kids with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> they found a pot buried in the corner of the basement. The pot contained 5,000 gold <gasps> coins. Oh my gosh. Um, this tenement house had once belonged to Captain Madison. And it was so it was the house that was later yeah. bought by Andrew Salisbury. That's why it was important oh that goodness. Captain Madison owned a house. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, and that all these guys were interconnected. Um, the boys have some legal battles with the landlord, with the Salisbury daughter, who did not know these existed, which is why it's important well, that he died early, with anything. Um, no, because he died before stuff was... He, he wasn't able to tell anybody because he didn't think he was going to die. <laughs> Well, yeah, but he hid it, so um, you should look for your belongings before you leave. That's on you. He still owned the house. Oh, okay. That when makes he more died. sense. He still owned the house when no, he died. No, I'm saying, if does she own this house? No, I think it's been sold by this point, but who's That's going to I'm know saying. to go, Audrey, would you go dig around the basement to make sure your dad didn't leave 5,000 gold coins in it? Yeah. Maybe my dad, yeah. <laughs> Our I, dad, yeah, actually, yeah, absolutely. I would. Yeah, no, never mind. <laughs> Most people would, not Audrey. <laughs> well, and that's why like I'm saying that's on them. If that's not if you don't look around, then it's fine. Yeah. Keepers. No, and, and the landlord was like, well, that's mine. And they're like, 
Is it, though? Because you didn't know it was there either. You did not know you were buying that when you bought the house. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anyway, um, it goes to court, and eventually the the boys are like, no, this, they, they want it. They, they're like, this is, a, this is a treasure. Right. You get, this is your finder's fee, essentially. Um, they sell off the gold coins. Not the boys. The gold coins are sold uh-huh. off by, you know, executors or something. Um, it comes to around $10 million in modern monies. Um, that's put into trust, and the boys were able to get it when they turned 21. Um, wow. The whole point of this article, though, was, like, trying to prove that these guys were definitely related to this money. Yeah. And I, I, they did a pretty good job. I agree. All these people related. And the whole gold coins thing makes sense, and then everybody's owning these houses. And I, my assumption is that this house is acting as, like, the treasury space, the bank, uh-huh. for um, what's happening in Salisbury's primary parlor. Yeah. With all of the... Uh, that that's that's how I think that's happening. Is that's the the face and that's the storage because you don't want your, if you know you're the face and people know that's the face because he was known to have these in his house even yeah. if you weren't related to the um the group. You don't want that house to be raided and then the coins fine. So you need to put it in uh-huh. the less suspicious home, <laughs> the one that you also own normally. You know, just own two homes. Anyway, that's that's the story of the KGC treasure. There's, um, it's suspected that there are many other pots yeah, I bet. out there in the world, um, because they're, that's how they collected dues. That's a great gold story. coins. So it's, it's I like that. keep a lookout in your old timey basements. Find the, what was it? The silver? We're, yeah. We're missing 9,000 pounds of Mexican silver and also any gold coins that were used to be, um, payment for membership and dues to the Knights of the Golden Circle. All of those are being looked for. That's so cool. Yeah, everybody, it, everybody keep an eye out. Just keep let, an eye out. Let Tell, me know. Yeah, yeah, let me know. I'll take care of it for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to take your money from you. No, I'm not. You found it. Keepers. You got the finder's fee. But I just want to see pictures of it. Yeah, just tell me. Tell and me about it. you found it. <laughs> um, okay. So, and then please do all this research. I want to know who you think who you think owned it. Yes. <laughs> I'll do it actually for you. I have no problem with that if you tell me where you found it. Then we have another episode. Yeah. Either way, we have another episode. Yeah. If they send me the information, mm-hmm. if I look up the information, I'm fine doing the work. So let's see how these stories overlap, Audrey. Okay. So, <laughs> my story today is about the Dr. Samuel A. Mudhouse. Is he the name is Mud? Mud? I don't know what that means. Oh. What is that? Like, your name is Mud. It, it, you, you can't be counted for anything. Oh, I don't know. Because He's you're, a doctor. you're a liar, man. Well... We'll so I got my information from drmud.org at what? <laughs> oh, I'm so dumb. Drmud.org at lessobscura.com, wikipedia.org, and onlyinyearstate.com. So here is the history. Um, I was not able to find much history about the actual building itself, like the actual house, like when it was built, why, who built it, like you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's what I did find. So, the Dr. Samuel A. Mudhouse, also known as St. Catherine, is located in Waldorf, Maryland. It is a two-part frame farmhouse with a two-story, three-bay side passage main house and a smaller two-story, two-bay wing. It features a hip-roofed porch across the facade, added in 1928, Mm -hmm. and it has been in the Mud family since the 1690s. And today operates as a historic house museum where they hold tours for the public. It is this mud. Okay. 
This is the Your Name is Mud Mud. Um, now, here's what makes the house so famous. So, on the night of April 14th, um, 1865, John Wilkes Booth shot President Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater, jumped off a balcony, and broke his leg. As Booth rode through Maryland to escape, his first stop was at the house of Dr. Samuel Mudd. So, what exactly happened next um, has been up to debate for years um, between historians and Civil War scholars, as well as descendants of the Mudd family, because they don't want their name dragged through the mud. Ha ha, get it. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, Dr. Samuel Mudd was a Southern sympathizer during the Civil War. He very well could have been a part of... the KGC. Of, uh-huh. <laughs> And in addition to his medical practice, he owned several slaves to work the small tobacco farm on his property. Um, And then there was a whole big thing about how, like, back then, like, Maryland had a lot of supporters of slavery and a lot of people who weren't. So, like, it wasn't weird that he was a supporter, but also, like... It wasn't. Well, it was the reason it was border state. Yeah. Um, Okay. Okay, so, Mudd and Booth had actually met several times before this night... Probably in uh, Salisbury's house. Um, maybe so. <laughs> in November and December the previous year, Booth had inquired around the area about properties that were for sale. Um, he actually didn't want to buy anything. He just did this to scope out the area to plan future escape routes. For the um, kidnapping. So he at least <laughs> met Mud once because I guess he had property for sale at some point. I mm-hmm. don't really know. But they talked about different times that they could have met. Um, yeah. Whatever. And also, like, why would he go to this man's house? Because he knew the doctor lived there. Like, you know. No, exactly. They were running in similar circles. In his written statement, Dr. Mudd recalled Booth and Harold, who was his... um, Accomplice? Yeah. And um, he recalled them arriving at the house. So, quote, about four o'clock on Saturday morning, the 15th, two persons came to my house and commenced rapping very loudly at the door. I was very much alarmed at this, fearing it might be somebody who had came there not for any good purpose. Before opening the door, however, I inquired who was there. They told me two strangers from St. Mary's Company Co., St. Mary's Co., who were on their way to Washington, but that the horse Is of... Is county? What? St. Mary's County? Oh, is that what it is? Maybe. Could be. Um... But that the horse of one of them had fallen and broken the rider's leg. Satisfying myself of the correctness of the statement of one of them having received an injury by going to a window and seeing one of them in distress, I went and opened the door. I took them into the parlor and laid the injured man on the sofa until I could get a light when I took him upstairs. After the injured man got off of his horse, the other one asked me um, if I could not if I could not have the two horses stabled as one of them would not suffer herself to be hitched. Um, I went and got the boy who was one of his, um, slaves, Mm -hmm. I think, or hired people. And he held the horses until the boy came, Harold, as in he, Mm um, okay. That's the end of his quote. It is St. Mary's County. Okay. Okay. So before the two men, uh, before taking the two men upstairs, Dr. Mudd went um, to his kitchen building and woke up Frank Washington, who was the boy that he referred to, um, to tender the horses. Uh, Washington was formerly enslaved by Dr. Mudd, but now was a hired hand and worked on the Mudd farm. As he entered the front yard to receive the or retrieve the horses, Frank remembered, quote, 
the day was just breaking. It was just about daybreak. Um, I don't know why that's in That's there. saying the same thing Well, twice. there was a whole thing about um, how the reason a lot of this is, like, di- like disputed between historians and, like, the family is because, like, he wasn't actually able to... He might not have actually been able to see the people out the window because it was so dark out, or he might have been able to see them out the window. Like, it was something about... Depending on how much Knowing who these people were was. in the front. That's why it's all... Yeah. That's why that's in there. So, Mud set Booth's leg and later that day traveled to Bryantown to run some errands to find a carpenter who could make a set of crutches for Booth, which he didn't know was Booth. I think he, he said he was Mr. Tyler or something like mm-hmm. that. <clears throat> he says he didn't know it was Booth. <clears throat> so, while he was in town, he was told about the assassination of Lincoln and heard that police were looking for two fugitives. So, when Mud returned home, the two assassins had already left or words to leave by mm-hmm. mud depending on whose account you believe and i believe that mud is not a good guy um especially after your story i think <laughs> me me thinks he was probably running those circles yeah i think this is compelling enough to say he was definitely not a good guy i do gotta say here's the thing i've been i do a lot of uh old-timey people research for a living um and anytime you get people from just like the 1860s they all look like john wilkes booth that's true he had it, it, everything about his style was exactly what was in at the time he was trendy. so 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 i'm not saying it's entirely possible like he looks like every other white guy out here well yeah but also like people in town had claimed you, that they had met yeah. each other before yeah no it's like you, you I, i'm thinking he probably well, also, knew who it was but I mean, also everybody looked like john when wilkes it starts then. out he was a southern sympathizer <laughs> and slave owner goodbye yeah goodbye <laughs> no i think me thinks you would have helped if you had or had not known him for the specific reason that he was running away so it wasn't until wait what did i say yeah depending on who's catching okay so it wasn't until the next day that mud sent word to union troops stationed nearby that the fugitives they were looking for may have passed through so that's another thing that's suspicious because he waited another day before telling everybody it is a little bit weird yeah if he's supposed to be a good guy and they're trying to clear his name. Mm-hmm. That makes you suspicious. You should have been saying it right away if you were trying to so, clear his name. Or your name. Mud wasn't... Well, as, you would, if you were in town and you heard about it, you would have been like, oh, that's really interesting. That's Last weird, because two guys came through my night, house. Yeah. <laughs> and they might still be at my house if somebody wants to go check that out. Yeah. So, Mud was interrogated by authorities and initially claimed that he had never met Booth before setting his broken leg. This was quickly disproven, and he was placed on trial as a co-conspirator in the assassination of Lincoln. A jury found him guilty and sentenced him to life in prison at Fort Jefferson in Dry Tortugas, Florida. Oof. Um, that's the one that's all the way out there on yeah. the end of the island. Yeah, it is. That place is crazy. He made a failed attempt to escape shortly after arriving, but eventually settled into prison life and was employed in the prison carpentry shop. In 1867, a yellow fever epidemic swept through the prison and killed prisoners, guards, and workers. Um, the prison doctor died from this, and Mudd agreed to take the position and subsequently saved most of the prison's population. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he was a good doctor, I guess. No, yeah, because his, his, um, he had, like, a whole room. It's all labeled as being his room. And they yeah. talk about the good things he did while he was there as a doctor. So he at least, he, he seemed to be a bona fide doctor, unlike, uh, Mr. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was eventually pardoned by President Andrew Johnson in 1890, or 1869, and returned to his home and resumed his medical career. 
um, living a mostly private life and dying of pneumonia at the age of 49 in 1883. Since his death, his family has actively but unsuccessfully attempted to clear his name. Wonder why. Um, okay, so. Well, and it's funny because the whole website, I'm pretty sure the house, whenever it started as a museum, was because his family wanted to start it as a museum to remember this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on their website, it's literally like a whole bunch of videos of what like this time of day looked like back then and all this other stuff. But it's like it's videos trying, it's like trying to get it. them to be like, look how dark it yeah. was though. But also like... at the same time, yeah, people were sort of used to it just always being dark. Yeah. Um, and you would have to get better at one. It, your eyes would be adjusting less than they do now because we're like every time shocked by the concept of dark because it's so light now here that I, I think you would also have to look at it from the perspective of what were old timey eyes seeing. Yep. And a lot of people didn't have glasses that were good. Yeah, that's true. So you have, <laughs> but that, that means you have to use other things to figure out who people yeah. are, which, which would not um, necessarily be in your favor if you're trying to disprove this. Correct. Anyway. <laughs> That's just what's on, like, their main website page. Um, So today, there have been many paranormal events experienced at the house. Um, Visitors have claimed to hear phantom footsteps, artificial candles illuminating by themselves, and spooky sightings of Civil War soldiers. Fun. So, I'm going to keep that one for last, I think. Let's see. Just remind me to read that one, because I'm going to do these other ones first. It, it's straight crazy to me that you're not doing them in order, because I'd never remember to go back. Well, it's only one paragraph, so I'll remember. So, one of the famous stories comes from the museum's founder, Louise Mudd Earhart. Sure. Um, in, the, in August, in the August seven, or 1978 edition of the Dr. Samuel A. Mudd Society Newsletter, which, like, you're that's doing an, too much. That's so much. You're doing too much to try and clear your family's name if you have a newsletter about him. Anyway, she talked about a mysterious light that seemed to occupy an area of the museum. Um, Louise was one of the grandchildren of Dr. Mudd. Her father, Samuel A. Mudd II, took over the farm when the doctor passed away in um, 1883. Wait. Louise... Did he, ever, did he die in prison or get out of prison? He was pardoned. Oh, you're right. Out, okay, okay. His career, you're right, you're right. And then died of pneumonia. Yeah. Um, Louise recalled learning about the light as a small child. She said, quote, I recall Papa calling the family together and showing us the light. It was an eerie feeling I recalled as I climbed up the five-board fencing by the well house to see the light as it went around the barns and along the fence line, end quote. She went on to provide several accounts from neighbors to corroborate her story. I'm sorry, this is the most upsetting story I've ever heard in my life. It's weird. (laughs) It's long, too. Um, The first was a nephew of Dr. Mudd named Joe Gardner, Um, and according to Louise, he lived in Oak Hill. Um, the former house of the doctor's father. So that's, I think so that's the name of a great, state building. Great yeah, granddad of Louise. I yeah. Think. He once said, "Just great." The doctor's father. Oh yeah, yeah. Great grand. Yeah. Okay. Great so he once said to a neighbor that there was a ghost over on the Doctor Sam farm. So I'm assuming he said this as a kid, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Stating that a light used to go into the Dr. Samuel A. Mud house, all through the rooms, around the house, and down through the fields. This sounds like it was happening while, while Mud was there. Don't know. Well, no, because if the nephew saw it. 
don't know. Well, I this guess is... the nephew of Dr. Mudd. So it could have been before it, it after totally, he got it. Yeah, it could have been either. So on one occasion, he and his sister were on their way home from St. Peter's Church near Dawn. Um, when they reached the old St. Peter's Cemetery, the light suddenly came out of the graveyard and fixed itself near the top of the buggy. Then the two said the light began moving around their carriage. Joe's sister said, quote, Joe, we have to get home. What do we do? Um, Joe put the reins to the horse and headed south as fast as he could. The light allegedly followed them down the road for some distance before it turned into the Zikai swamp and sure. vanished. Another neighbor, this Fred is Bender, so weird. I don't like it. <laughs> Fred Bender moved on to the farm adjacent to Oak Hill in 1910. One day, he was in the field with a hired worker named Ambrose Gross. Who Ambrose named him Gross. That? Um, Bender remembered that Ambrose looked up and shouted, "Look at that light going over Mr. Joe's field!" The light passed Joe's house and headed north toward the mud house. Uh, the two men chased the light as fast as they could, but were stopped by the flooded stream that connected the two farms. Mr. Bunder and another neighbor, Mr. Petzold, spotted the light hovering over a cornfield. The two men decided to arm themselves and went over to the big wood pile and got a big clump of wood and started following the light, going slow. The light entered one of the barns on the Oak Hill property. The two men rushed to the building, hurried as fast as they could, um, saying, quote, now we can catch it. <laughs> when they arrived at the closed barn door, the light shot out of the building and disappeared into the swamp. What the heck is this? Um, and that's the last story we have of the creepy light. Um, oh so my now gosh. We have another so <laughs> weird. We have another story. Um, from the house uh, that was once again reported by, well, not from this house, but it's another story that Louise has. About her family. So it's kind of related to the house. Uh, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> well, let's... Okay, anyway, we'll I just, I'll just get into that it. Would, that was enough to sufficiently say the house is haunted. <laughs> it's weird. It's so weird. So, Louise, um, in another newsletter, wrote that she remembered that in the early 1960s, she began being visited by a spirit in her home, not the mud house. She didn't live there. Yeah. Um, her brother owned it and was yeah. farming, I think, at this time. Um, she reported hearing, quote, she reported, quote, hearing footsteps going upstairs, but there is no upstairs here. Um, <laughs> she also reported hearing someone knocking at her door, only to find the step empty once she opened the door. She also noted that her husband even began to experiencing the vanishing knocker and was becoming convinced of supernatural experiences himself. Huh. So... As the visits bit, went the on, a little bit cursed. Yeah. So as the visit, well, it's just her. Well, I guess it is their whole it's, family. Yes, that's the whole seeing family it. Yeah. Been seeing these things. So as the visits went on, she was able to note that the spirit was quote a man wearing a long brown top coat and cap. Um, as time went on, the encounters became closer, like in mm -hmm. inter time intervals. Yeah. Um, once Luis Luis recalled being in the house alone. She was cleaning in her kitchen, and as she moved from the kitchen into the dining room, she stopped at the sight of the spirit standing in front of her. It was, like, right mm -hmm. in her face. Yeah. Um, I hate that. Yeah. Where was I? Oh, so on this occasion, the spirit was wearing black trousers, a black vest, a white shirt with the sleeves rolled back to his elbows, and a black bow tie, untied, and he was watching me. She, this is her exact mm -hmm. quote. He turned and went down the hall. 
Um, he disturbed the family dog while doing this, and Louise followed the man into the next room, but he had vanished. Louise is so much braver than I am. <laughs> she became convinced that the spirit was her grandfather and that he wanted her to do something. She told her husband that she needed to travel to see her brother on the family farm because, quote, Grandpa is telling me to save the Dr. Mud house for the next generation, end quote. And this is when she has the newsletter started up. Um, <laughs> so... She had to do a lot to try and get the house turned into a museum. There's a lot of, like, dealing with her trying to take the house from her brother, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then stuff that you have to do to turn something into a museum, renovating, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So she had a lot to do to get this into a museum, um, and she was having trouble sleeping because of this. And she remembers that one night, around 2 a.m., she saw an all-white figure moving around her room. Quote, the figure slowly came forward... Oh, came around the wall and stopped by my side of the bed. Finally, I got the message. I said, okay, Grandpa, I'll get up and get busy. <laughs> so she got closer to getting um, the house to become a museum. And a few days before, there was a meeting to, like, I guess, establish it or something. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. She experienced the last of her visits from the spirit. Instead of being visited by a man, she noticed an image, quote, slowly shape up, like, out of a tunnel first small and then getting larger um as i began to recognize it i said why that is the dr samuel a mudhouse then it slowly went back down the tunnel it was the house finished just like the old pictures of it what the heck so yeah those are her her stories that she has um and then i do like those stories more than this one but i thought we should end on um this one Okay. So, one of the stories of the hauntings was featured in a Southern Living article. Um, the story focuses on one of the rope beds in the front upstairs bedroom called the Booth Room because of one of its most infamous occupants. Because those two did spend the night. Um, yeah. That night. So, legend goes that no matter how high or how tightly tucked the sheets are and the coverlet are in the evening, a human impression can be clearly seen in the bed by morning. Yeah. Um, this has led many people to believe that this is the spirit of John Wilkes Booth returning to the room he once occupied after the assassination. Um, they have also heard faint knocks at the front door, which makes visitors believe that this is the ghost of Booth because that's what he the did other the night on the door. that he was there. Um, and that's the story of the Dr. Samuel A. Mudhouse. Well, that was one of my favorite <laughs> ghost stories I've ever heard. I'm very upset by it, and I am very happy I'm not sleeping in a hotel tonight. Oh, my Because I wouldn't be able to sleep if I was in a hotel tonight. Hotels freak me out. The light story just kept, when I was doing my it research, just kept going it just kept and going, 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 going on and on, and I was like, Which made it more and more upsetting. Because it was just like, in one time, we saw a weird light go around the barn. <laughs> yeah. And that was the end of it. It wouldn't be a freaky story. The fact that so many people corroborated this no. thing existing yeah. and it interacts mm -hmm. and it's intelligent and it lives in a swamp. Yeah, <laughs> it's a swamp light. I don't like it. I know. I was like, man, I can't find anything good. And then I found those two stories and I was like, these aren't too bad. The ghost light? Oh my gosh. <laughs> ghost light. Uh, okay, well, that's our stories for this week. Um, try not to kill anyone and don't mess with Ouija boards. Bye. Bye.